It's Black Friday, y'all. And if you listen on Saturday, November 30th, it'll be Small Business Saturday. And if you listen on Monday, December 2nd, it'll be Cyber Monday. I got sweatshirts, I got t-shirts, I got mugs, caps, and aprons. And I sound like Lenny, who's got plenty from good times. But all of it is 15% off on each of those days. And also Sunday, December 1st. I mean, Sunday ain't got no name, but there's no reason for it to be left out of the party. Go check out the store at E-P-A-Y-N-E dot M-E slash Black Friday. That's epain.me slash Black Friday. Or you can visit the link in the show notes just beneath this episode. I am a recovering people pleaser. Oh, please. Pretty please. I've been sober now for, hmm, I'd say three years. No, we're about to be 2020. So I'd say two and a half, two and a half, two and three quarters years. I've been sober from being a people pleaser. Now, what do I mean by that? A people pleaser is someone who is very, very bent on what other people think of them. Very, very bent on making sure that everyone feels some kind of good, positive way about them. A way that they would like for them to feel. So I want people to be happy. I want to do what I can for others to make them happy. If my child is having a bad day, I will do whatever it takes to bring comfort to her day or something like that. But a people ple- that's that's one thing. But being a people pleaser means you are doing anything and everything, mostly things that aren't being asked of you, to look good in the eyes of someone else. And then sometimes you're doing what is asked of you What goes beyond what you should be doing, beyond your capability, beyond your financial capacity um, in order to satisfy someone else's honestly selfish wants. It is particularly insidious because you become possessed and obsessed with the thoughts of others of you. And what you do in the process of that is you surrender value, worth, Value and self-worth, I guess they're kind of interchangeable. But you you surrender value and you surrender time, you surrender money, and probably most importantly, you surrender control of yourself to someone else. And that's super duper 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 not cool. Oh, please. Pretty please. Welcome to the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. After getting his master's degree and getting cursed out, his second master's in getting kicked out, Eric Payne decided to pursue his doctorate in getting his life right and staying in his own lane. But upon getting all his degrees, he realized he was a fish out of water in this new dating landscape. Eric was 28 years old when he met his ex-wife and was newly divorced at 43. The world had changed considerably since the days of StarTech beepers, Motorola flip phones, and Yahoo Chat. It is vicious out here in these new streets where taking pictures of yourself all day long with a phone and posting them on the internet is actually a thing. The Dating After Divorce Survival Guide is the story of Eric's journey from love and marriage to divorce to dating to hopefully love and marriage once more. This is the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm your host, Eric Payne. I'm actually not your host. I guess I'm your tour guide because I'm guiding you, and I have a guide. So I'm the tour guide, and you guys are the survivalists. 
think I'm going to call you guys my survivalists. If Sway can have his citizens, then I can have my survivalists. Whether you're single, married, unmarried, about to be married, about to be unmarried. We've all survived something, right? So you're my survivalists. Yay! So, let's pick this thing up where we left off. And actually, let's stop before we start. And let me say thank you. I want to say thank you to everyone who supported, man. I mean, the, the response to the first episode was overwhelming. All right. So let's hit it. When we last left off, we had gotten together. The love was real. But we were arguing a lot. Couldn't see the eye to eye on a few things. Eventually... I moved from my co-op in Queens and moved into her apartment with her in New York City, Manhattan. And life was cool, but life was not cool. I mean, maybe it was because we were cohabitating before we were married. Maybe it was because we hadn't ironed out uh, parameters and boundaries and expectations. But the reality is that I was new to this family thing. I didn't know nothing about being somebody's stepfather. I was barely able to take care of myself. And I mean that. I, you know, men get a really hard time. But I mean, in general, adulthood, right? Depending on how you're raised. You know, I was raised. My parents took care of everything. They handled stuff. You know, they were, they, they, they were at the top or that they were in upper echelons of education. And they provided for me. What I was supposed to do is I was supposed to just get good grades and get a job and make the most of myself. My ex, you know, equally smart, equally intelligent, equally vivacious and gregarious. But she was a mom and she was a mom early on. And that taught her how to grind and do for herself and not only do for herself, but do for another one, another little one. So although I was four years older than her, I would argue that she was probably more mature than me when it came to the ways of life, the mores of life, the way you get things done, how you get things done, you know, making the calls you need to make, pulling the, calling the shots and that kind of stuff. Whereas I was kind of more on the line of, well, if I'm smart and I'm doing what I need to do, then good things will come. And that set up the backdrop for what would become a constant source of conflicts between conflict between the two of us. And it became so bad that Eventually, we broke up. So three years into our relationship, three years into my globe-trotting, city-hopping, amazing whirlwind romance with my ex-wife, with me living with her, we break up. And I'm no longer living in my co-op because I was renting my co-op and people in New York know what a co-op is, but easiest way to describe it for anybody who does not know what I'm talking about, it's a, it's a condo where the condo owners have joint ownership in the actual building. So the owner of my condo lived in Florida, Boca Raton, and he wanted to get rid of the place and I moved out and moved in with her. And then when we broke up, I didn't have a place to live. So what that, it forced me out of her house. I didn't have a place to live. One of my fraternity brothers just happened to have a house on the market. And he said, look, throw me a few hundred dollars a month and you can stay there. And I set up shop, an air mattress, paper plates, plastic forks and knives, a couple skillets. And then I just, you know, lived. Clothes, that kind of stuff. Put my stuff in storage, clothes. But the problem with that was that 
people come by the house once a week to look at it. And I'm sitting up in there looking like a squatter versus, you know, it, you know, the, the one staged bedroom in the house, it was not staged at all. It was an air mattress. You know, there was a tray, there was a chair. It looked like I was squatting. It was embarrassing. I mean, a couple times people came by and I was asleep because no one was calling me to let me know that they were coming by because I didn't own the house. Um, oh my God, is he supposed to be here? I mean, like seriously, is he? But I did that. I did that for about six months. And during that time period, I had reached out to her a few times to see how she was doing, where she was, how she was. Could we get back together? I mean, I just, I took the breakup hard. Um, I blame myself. Our breakup was a breakup. Our breakup probably was the point in time when we were probably supposed to part ways and maybe never return back together. But something I learned from Joel Olstein as a believer in Christianity, that if you want something hard enough, if you desire something enough and it's not in your best interest, God will be like, all right, go ahead. Do what you got to do. We'll see how far you get. I was doing a little shadiness. You know, her father was really cool with me. Her son went to school in an area by where I worked. And her father basically allowed me to pick him up from school and spend time with him. And because I, I enjoyed spending time with her son, who eventually became my son, because he is my son. I've adopted him. He's mine. He's not my stepson. He's my son. And I say all that to say, you know, spending time with him, getting to know him, developing a relationship with him was really, really nice. It was completely wrong, but it was really, really nice. She found out she was not happy about it at all. But around month six of our breakup, I guess she decided that she wanted to try again. So she wrote me a letter in a journal, a red leather bound journal that had one of those leather strings that ties it tight. And, you know, one of the days I was hanging out with him, he handed me the journal and it was actually one. It was going to be the last day because I realized that what I was doing was wrong. And, you know, if it was the end, then it was the end. The end was six months ago. So why am, what am I doing? So he hands me a journal and says, hey, hey, um, Mr. Eric or whatever it was, he was calling me because he, he didn't start calling me pops until dad until a couple of years later. And then he started calling me pops. He called me pops to this day. So he said, hey, um, mom wanted me to give you this. I opened the journal and it was basically a love letter. Hey, I'm sorry for what happened between us. I'm sorry for my part in what happened between us. And I want to work things out with you. And if we are able to work things out, this will be the ultimate love story that we can share with our children. We only had one child at the time. And I said, cool. You know, I mean, I mean, I didn't say cool. I actually got upset. Um, I was like, you know, I've been saying this all along, not the love story part, but like the things that she was apologetic for. And I was like, you know, I responded because it was a journal, like, please write your thoughts down and I will accept your response, whatever it is. So what I wrote was temper tantrum, temper tantrum, temper tantrum, temper tantrum, temper tantrum, blame, 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 blame. But you can call me. This is my new number. And so she called me or maybe she wrote back. I think we wrote back and forth like two or three more times before she called me. And then we got back together. Thank you for listening to the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. Leave a review if you like what you're hearing and let a couple of your friends know. Now back to the episode. Along the way, we got pregnant. 
got engaged, got married on a bluff on the south coast of Barbados, overlooking the Atlantic Ocean, in a beautiful ceremony that had all the makings of the beginning of what would be a beautiful life together. But when we got back, the argument persisted, and this communication only grew stronger. I fell asleep on the couch a lot. I had an answer for everything, even when I was dead wrong. Money was always tight. Resentment began to brew between the two of us. But my people pleaser gene that was operating at full throttle kept me going, oh, kept please, us together, pretty, and kept me holding out for hope that the inevitability that was slowly beginning to boil between us would never come to pass. We relocated, uprooting from her hometown of New York City, a place where she was tired of being, but the place where I was dead set on quote-unquote making it and we headed to atlanta atl hot atlanta chocolate city or as many people nowadays call it wakanda it was here in the a where we set down roots and our kids did too in new york we were little fish in a very big pond that was cold and didn't give a damn who we were but in atlanta we were bigger fish. We were New Yorkers, like crazy New Yorkers. In a smaller pond where people seemed genuinely interested in who we are, what our names were, what we were about, and trying to work with us. It was, it was beautiful. The feeling was good. It was comforting. It was reassuring. And somehow I thought that that was enough, enough to keep us going, to find a way back to one another, because all I ever wanted was to be in love. The problem with this singular love thing, though, is that it doesn't accomplish much on its own without a plan, not when it comes to another person. And when, you know, whatever the level of relationship is that you are with a person, if there's no plan, then there's no direction. And if there's no direction, then there is no destination. Not that too many of us are ever blessed to reach their desired destination, but at least if you have a destination, you can begin to enjoy the journey to it. Because after all, the journey is where life is lived, where lessons are learned, where growth is experienced and character is developed. But in the absence of that journey, or the perceived absence of a journey, because everything honestly is a journey, there is no reason to be. And we were just aimlessly floating about. Ships separate ships in the water passing at night and the thing about being married is that if you don't get a tribe you can be just out there islands with no help no lifelines no nothing and because you're married everybody just thinks everything is good so don't nobody check for you everything must be good haven't heard anything the kids are cute i see the kids on social media they look good At 39 years old, my wife of seven or so years and my girlfriend of seven and a half years, I'm talking about the same person, didn't want marriage and didn't want me anymore. With 15 years on the clock, I thought she was crazy. Girl, you must be crazy. Even though deep down in my bones, I was dying a slow death from the lack of affection I was receiving in my own home. And like many men before and since me, I didn't understand that she had mourned our collapse long before it ever came to pass. So when she was ready to go, she was out. O-U-T, out. 
ready to move on, ready to be great, ready to be whatever she wanted, with whomever she wanted, without me. And the rest of the world, man, they were just going to have to figure out how to deal. I wish I could say I handled it well. <sighs> Yo, I was a freaking mess. Every insecurity I ever had rose to the surface. I was full of rage. I was just saying crazy stuff. Girl, you must be crazy. And in my desperation to keep my family together, I probably did more to chase her away by holding on too tight. By demanding she be someone she wasn't. By pouring out too much romance when the romance was long gone. I'm dad. I'm the man they know. I'm the man they love. I'm the man you know and love. I've known you since you're 24 years old. You're going on 40 years old. And now you're saying that you want to start over? No. No. Girl, you must be crazy. But what the hell was I saying no for? No to what? She was out. Who am I saying? What? I'm saying no. I'm like buying her shit. I'm like fixing dents in her car without insurance. I'm doing all kind of crazy stuff. I'm putting flowers all over the house. I'm putting stickers that say I love you. And you know, as romantic as that stuff may sound, as picturesque as that may stuff stuff may sound. I mean, I did the 40 day love dare. I, I was trying to get her to go to counseling with me. She wouldn't go. She reminded me that when we first got married, I wanted I didn't want to go to counseling because, you know, counseling wasn't even a thing for people of color back then. It was, oh, I just got Jesus. All I need is Jesus. I, I, I subscribe to all of that. So, you know, there was a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blaming and a lot of being out. But there was something that she said to me that was really, really, really powerful that I tell a lot of divorced men to keep in mind or divorcing men to keep in mind. She said, you're not fighting for me. You're fighting for the family. Girl, you must be crazy. First of all, I shouldn't have been fighting for either. I don't have, you don't fight for, you just, you maintain, you nurture. But fight, I think, is the wrong term. Protecting it for sure from outside attacks, threats, assaults, other people. Definitely got to protect it and keep it safe. But fight, uh, I don't know. And it's probably a good point for me to introduce that at this point I was a people pleaser. The dilemma that the people pleaser faces is that when they do all that they do and they're used up, burnt out, washed up, they come to the person that they have sought all these things from, hoping and praying and wishing and wanting that they would just see them better than the way they see them. And the person that is the object of the people pleasers lust says, I ain't ask you to do all that or ain't nobody told you to do that. And the people pleaser takes that as the ultimate form of rejection. And then they get mad and then they get angry and then they start, you know, regurgitating all the things that they did. To which, again, the person says, I ain't ask you to do that. Or did nobody tell you to do that? That was all you, boo. I was stuck. Blinded by what should have been. Blinding, blinded. Blinded by what we had when we first met and coaxed on by all the people. And I mean, when I say people, I mean people like crazy Christians, random people in McDonald's that told me that they saw a vision of me. I was listening to everybody. I probably was listening to homeless people, nothing against homeless people. But what I'm saying is that if anybody said anything like, oh, I see you having love in your future. Oh, you have a great light. And what the, whatever it is you're going through right now, you will go through it, but you will come out successfully. You will have love. 
I mean, like crazy stuff like that was happening to me everywhere I was going because I guess I was seeking affirmation so much that I could get through this thing that was beginning to happen to me that I was taking insight and advice from any nitwit that had a piece of advice to give. I begged and I pleaded and I begged and I pleaded and I begged and I pleaded and I begged and I pleaded. To all of which, the answer was a singular no. And then when I regurgitated what some book said or what somebody from church said or what one of these people at McDonald's or out on the street corner said to me, she looked at me like I had completely lost my shit. In retrospect, po thing, I was so much to deal with. And in the midst of the marriage collapsing, my father got ill. My son got kicked out of school. The divorce came. I eventually, and I didn't even leave peacefully, but I eventually moved out into a one-bedroom apartment with nothing but my clothes. So I had three friends that helped me move, but I only had two friends that had the stamina to help me move. And what I mean by stamina is to deal with my emotionalness, my inability to pull the trigger on actually packing up my boxes to leave and so on and so forth. One of my frat brothers who's a police officer here in Atlanta and my mentor who's an army guy, they both, I guess maybe it was because they're in service to others and, you know, particularly, um, I guess, protection service and security service, if you will. Um, the word is escaping me that I want to use, but they weren't paying me no mind. They packed my stuff up while I whined and complained, talking about how unfair everything was and how life just shouldn't be the way that it is. And one thing my mentor said was, a year from now, you're going to be singing a different, a very different song. I was like, no, I'm not. This is a travesty. This is terrible. It is the breaking up of the black family and yada, yada, yada. But he knew what was up. <laughs> I remember the first couple nights I was there. I remember I drank myself to sleep. I was out on the balcony. I drank myself to sleep. And I passed out on the balcony in the lawn chair that I brought with me. I did bring lawn chairs. And I woke up covered with bug bites. Uh, yeah, I woke up covered with bug bites. I was divorced. And I was alone. So what would happen when I would talk to a lot of my friends... You know, they were all married because I was married and that was the circle that I ran with. So they would talk to me and it would definitely be, you know, constructive and productive and they'd listen and they'd offer up their two cents. But then without fail, the phone would ring because that was inevitable. The phone would ring. Hey, baby, how you doing? You need what? You want me to pick what up? What? Okay. All right, cool. I got you. I love you. I'll see you later. And, you know, put the phone away, took it in a jacket, put it in the back of your pants, whatever, whatever you did with your phone. And then they turn back to me and be like, all right, I'll holla. You know, I got to go pick up whatever, whatever for wifey or I got to go do whatever with wifey, which they naturally were supposed to do. And you can only be in therapy, but for so long, an hour or two before the therapist starts to start bugging out. And I could see it. I went to, I had a Christian therapist. I had a regular therapist. And, you know, I hit my hour. And that stuff was getting expensive. You just don't have the ability to have someone in your pocket or in your ear or in their ear. You don't have the ability to have that like 24-7. So when I didn't have those security blankets around me, I mean, I, I fell. It was like I was fine when I was with my people. I was fine when I was in therapy. And then the second that I was by myself, I collapsed in on myself. And I didn't know where to go and what to do. 
and how to start. I didn't know how to cook. I barely, because she was a foodie and did most of the, the, the cooking, and I felt ugly, and I felt rejected, and I couldn't look at myself in the mirror because I felt unwanted and unloved and unworthy. And I felt that I had given 15 years of my life. I had dated her for seven and a half years, and then we were married for seven and a half years. So I felt like I gave, a one, I gave someone 15 years of my life for nothing. For her to just go on and be great with someone else, if it, just be great, let alone be great with someone else, just be great. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. My parents were together. My parents still are together. And I was a failure. Not only was I a failure, God failed me. God let my family collapse right in front of me. I prayed, I prayed, and then I ran around and asked everybody or anybody that would listen to me. Like I gave, I told them my business and I told them to pray for me and I gave them, you know, I had them like siding with me to give me encouragement. Um, this was the point in my life where I think, you know, I set the stage for chasing my friends away. It was, it was, it was tough, but the thing that I just really could not understand is that she just didn't want to be married anymore. The reasons, you know, definitely I deserved a reason as, you know, the husband about to be ex-husband, but she just didn't want to be married anymore. And you can't make anybody do anything that they don't want to do. You just can't. And if they stay, is that something that you really want? So, I got divorced. And this, this 43-year-old emotional mess who believed that the world owed him something, or at least because he felt he was putting his best foot forward, the world owed him something. This is what was released into the world of the single. Thank you for listening. If any of this sounded familiar, listen. Again, it's not to make fun of, poke fun of, insinuate, villainize, demonize, nothing. It really is not. It's it's me telling a story. And me telling a story from my perspective. If this is something that you're going through, if this is something that is fresh and raw, and if this is something, after listening to this, this has made you angry or sad or made you want to cry, I would encourage you to just don't deny those emotions. Just let it out. I think one of the biggest things that I struggled with before I moved on with my life was acceptance. I couldn't accept what had happened. I couldn't accept that I was not in control. And acceptance prevents growth because it prevents you from moving forward. It holds you stuck to the thing that you are so that you're so tied to. And then on top of that, you memorialize it to be typically better than what it actually was. It probably was no good for you or wasn't very good for you or wasn't particularly healthy for you and quite possibly your children. However, in memorializing it and aggrandizing it in your own mind because it is now the past and the facts are no longer the same and it's the way you view it and it's your perspective, you will make something that you have no business being attached to much greater than it is. And because it no longer exists, you're literally making love to a ghost while your present day life is passing you by. Once again, thank you for listening. Tune in for the next time, two weeks from now. We'll be back on Thursday for what happens next when Eric Payne is out there hot to trot, fly, and swagalicious. Yeah, none of that happened. In fact, episode three is entitled No Bounce to the Ounce. 
on the rebound and the worst sex ever. All right now. Hi. Why are you here? So sad.